Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Asking For It, the podcast that reclaims and reframes that powerful phrase to find out what people are actually asking for. My name is Amy Maiden, and I am your host, and I am coming to you on the rainiest of rainy nights in Sydney that I've seen in quite some time. It's pretty miserable here at the moment. And I mean, look, to be fair, this happens probably once a year for about two days where it's cold and rainy, so I really shouldn't complain. But I'm feeling very sorry for myself because I just had to ride home in the pouring rain on my Vespa and I got a bit soaked through. So I was feeling very down and very miserable and was thinking, oh, I've got to make the pods and I've got to get it up tonight because it's all got to happen. And maybe I'll just say we're having a break this week and like, I'm tired and I don't want to. Look, I was just feeling very self-indulgent about all of it. Let's be honest, call it what it is. And then I opened up my computer and I listened to the conversation that you are about to listen to with the incredible Kelly Dolly. And it just made me smile and it warmed the cockles of my frozen heart, (laughs) only frozen temperature wise. I'm actually very calm and loving person. But I listened to this conversation. I said, no, I will not make the people wait for this conversation any longer. I am giving them this interview. So here we are. And this week's guest is indeed Kelly Dolly. Now, Kelly's a mate of mine. I know her. She and I did a leadership program together through the Australia Council over the past kind of couple of years. And I got to know her through that process. I love listening to Kelly talk. She has such beautiful and elegant insights into the world and such a heartfelt presence in her community. Um, She's an artist, a visual artist. Um, She is an artist, curator and arts worker, currently living on Gadigal land in Sydney. She works across government, cultural venues and in the independent arts sector. And her practice explores feminist and queer ways of being, looking and working through making art, research and exhibition making. She is a founding member of artist collective Barbara Cleveland with Diana Smith, Frances Barrett and Kate Blackmore, who together explore performance and gender, and they've been doing that since 2007. That collective practice extended into being an active and dedicated member of the Sydney art community, and Kelly initiates various different independent projects and events as part of her work. She's a brilliant woman, and I'm very lucky not just to know her, but to count her as my friend. She came over to my house in Newtown. Sydney and we had a cup of tea which you will hear us slurping (laughs) sorry about that Uh, and again this interview is in my lounge room so you'll hear some airplanes going above because yeah most of the inner west of Sydney is under a flight path so enjoy that too Uh, if you enjoyed this you should let Kelly know you can go and visit her website kellydolly.com check out her work it's really cool I really encourage you to do that uh, and do tweet about it share it you can contact us on all of our socials at asking for it pod so here it is I didn't want to I was cold and tired and I listened to it again and I loved it <laughs> here's my conversation with the incredible Kelly Dolly Kelly Dolly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for being here. (laughs) It's great to be here. Great. (laughs) Uh, So we'll get started. Um, The question I ask everybody on this podcast is, Kelly Dolly, what are you asking for? Well, I am an artist and I've been practicing for 
close to over over 10 years now as a freelance working in performance and video and experimental practice and something that I'm asking for is greater diversity and gender equality in the arts I think it's a real issue (laughs) I think from from my experience I think the arts is very white and um, particularly when you get into the leadership positions of arts organizations um, people making the decisions um, it becomes uh, yeah not, not as diverse as it should be and I think that's what I'm asking for and something I'd love to see change in my lifetime is um, some real leadership around that issue um, and you know like I was thinking um, I'd love to see leaders in the arts who are already in those positions really uh, start talking about this and start talking about how there needs to be more um, people of colour in these leadership positions, more women in leadership positions, more trans-identifying people in these positions, um, actually starting to start the conversation and ask for better um, and not be afraid to have difficult conversations because I feel like um, and I mean, I, I think this is across the board and not just specific to the art scene, but there's a real fear of having difficult conversations, particularly around um, race or gender inequality. Mm. And I'd love to see that shift. And I thought um, I was really inspired by um, like talking about leadership. Like what if some of our leaders in the arts actually started doing actually you know taking a stand or doing something and um the arts access um executive director Mm. that just recently resigned um to kind of make way for um someone with that identifies with having disability to lead that organization I thought was a really amazing example of what I'm talking about and it's not that um uh, it was like I thought the way she did it as well and the way she was talking about it was really amazing. It was like, if we want to see change, um, we have to actually start to ask those hard questions and make very difficult decisions. And, um, you know, it completely makes sense that an art, like an arts and disability organisation should be led by someone who identifies with having disability. That That's a, you know, yes. <laughs> a great logic. Um, but I just love that that person... Um, essentially gave up power, a form of power, to make way for someone that could also lead that organisation in a really interesting way. And I think, you know, she she didn't actually just annul her position. It was interesting. I think there was just a new position made. It was like head of policy or something like this. Mm. So it's not like she just left. It's like she's still engaged in the conversation and she's still there, but she just kind of bowed out. And, Mm. yeah, I just think that's a really interesting example of what I'm talking about. I, com- I completely agree and I think we've been talking about this lo- a lot I've been talking about this a lot lately with different people and yeah. going how do you say this without offending anybody the people who are in those leadership positions at the moment are good people and they know that there's a problem and they're creating all sorts of programs to you know to for succession planning and for people to have those kind of pathways and that's shifting now but as you say, the real marker of leadership will be when someone gives up power yes. so that somebody else can have a go. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, and that's actually the most difficult thing to do. But only ch- real change will only happen when that starts happening. Yeah. And, you know, I think in that sense, it'd be really good to see more 
um, men in leadership positions talking about this stuff, particularly white men, yeah. because really if, if they can start having those conversations and leading in that way, I really think that could open the doors for a whole lot of other things to flow and it shouldn't just be the responsibility of the underrepresented mm. to be always banging on the door. Yeah. It should be a joint because like diversity broadly, I know it's an overused term, but it's a good thing. I think we all agree it's a good thing. It's going to make for better art, for better ideas, for, you know, just a better overall experience. Which <laughs> yeah. you want. Right. right. So if everyone believes that, yeah. then um, I just don't understand why there's still this kind of silence on, well, what, what actually needs to shift. It's interesting. I think there's conversation. I see... You know, I work in a company and I see cross companies as conversations happening internally but not yeah. externally. Yeah. And that's where, where I think that's a problem. Yeah. And I don't I do wonder why is that? Why 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 does it become an internal private conversation? Mm. Um well, yeah, why are people afraid to actually start talking about that publicly? I mean, we're doing it now. It's yeah. being recorded, yeah. you know, it's happening, but um uh, yeah, I don't see it on a larger scale. Yeah. Maybe I need to get one of them on as a guest and I can just ask them that very <laughs> question so I'm not speaking for them. But, you know, I do see those statistic directors talking about, you know, or, or in their program, you know, you look at the, the shift, I think, since I've moved back to Australia, which is, what, six years now, the mm. shift in what I'm seeing on stages in Sydney. I can really only talk about Sydney theatre. Yeah. I have seen a shift yep. in terms of the programming of playwrights and directors, but now it's that next step is really about that ultimate seat of power. Yeah. And, and I, that's, as you, I think that's the next step. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, yeah, it's about um, having women in key leadership and creative positions, not just at the administration level. And like you're saying, in a theatre context, I agree. I think there's been way more female playwrights and directors getting a go. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I could count on my hand, like, how many female leaders are running arts organisations in Australia. Like, yeah. it's not... Across platforms. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a hefty sum. So, um, yeah, and I, I was just talking to you before about um, there's the, the Guardian in the UK, basically... The Guardian is reporting on all organisations in the UK have to report on how much they pay, like, their female and male staff. Um, they have to report to the, to the British Council, to the Arts Council of yeah. Britain? Or? Uh, no, no, it's not arts. It's, a, it's across. So oh. it's, like, commercial companies yeah, because right. they want to understand exactly what the gender pay gap is. Wow. And um, basically the Guardian has got, is getting all that data and um, basically made a calendar of when companies essentially stop paying women as opposed to men because it's, a, it's actually a more interesting way to talk about... If we're talking about gender inequality in leadership mm. um, or the pay gap, um, it's actually a better way to talk about it in terms of the amount of work that women will do as opposed to men that isn't remunerated or... Mm. Um, uh, what's the word, like given leadership opportunity. So women will work more and they'll be at lower leadership positions and they'll get paid less, whereas men will work uh, less, be paid more and be given leadership positions. And it's a, it's, it's a really good, it's, on, it's online. It's like they do a calendar and like they, yeah, right. they go like this many companies have stopped paying women and you get to like 
um, August or something. It's like 700, you know, companies have stopped paying women. And wow. Yeah, you, yeah. You we'll, can put put, that, we'll put the link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, the website, yeah so it's like really bleak. It's like, yeah. oh, my God. Um, but, like, it's funny because, like, I sometimes feel like that. Like, it's, it's not – I think it's a more interesting, nuanced way to talk about inequality, right, yeah. because it's like – you know, there is that cliche of like, you know, women work have to work twice as hard and particularly women of colour have to work triple, quadruple as hard yeah. to get a go as opposed to um, someone in a position of power. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I like the calendar. Mm. It's like, um, I think it was like 1970 when they had the, in the UK, the um, equal pay gap day. Mm-hmm. And that's when they first started using that calendar. So don't mind me, I was drinking my tea. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, mmm. Mm, let me taste that sweet, sweet inequality. <laughs> so yeah. do, you, do you think that at the moment where um, – so this, this is great big conversation at the moment, which is wonderful, and it's like things that were kind of kept as women's business and now like headline news all yeah. the time. It's a very big conversation. So – but Kelly, how do we fix it? <laughs> what, what do you think is something? Do you have like solutions, or is it like? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. But fix which part? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you mean like the work, like work stuff? Yeah, let's let's start there. So it's kind of, you know, what is it? Do, is it about getting more women onto executive and board positions to then change that calendar? Yeah, I think basically my thoughts on this are the work system was never made for women. It was made for men. So the way, the whole way, the say the working week works or the whole idea of working full time is invented by men because it, women just weren't in the workforce, right? Yeah. Then women were allowed to come in and it was basically like, oh, you're allowed to come in but play by our rules. And I would think that... If you, if you take that approach, you're basically not, um, you're not creating a space that is built by women for women. Um, you're just allowing women to slot into a particular way of being. Mm. And so I would say that's a huge reason why women aren't in leadership positions. And the same can be said for working across cultures as well, is that you've got a very white yeah. Absolutely. colonial system of working yep. and you're saying to say First Nations people oh come on in but yeah. you've got to do it the like this exactly so we're all different exactly so, yeah yeah so um, a more flexible workplace is the absolute beginning mm. um, I know that goes against like <laughs> the capitalist productive <laughs> you know kind of well, I, think um, going, I think we're going there we have we have the technology you know, now to do that yeah and you hear of like I don't you know I don't really know much about it but you hear of like those more startup mm. um you know tech companies that are basically invented by tw- you know 20 somethings mm-hmm. that they are more flexible with that kind of stuff mm. um but in a more traditional working sense it's so not it's so not like, it's really, like, the expectation is you be here, you know, from early morning till late at night. Mm. You do anything to make it happen. This is your prior, number one priority. Mm. Um, nothing else comes between that. You don't have a body. You don't, you know, like, it's just, like, really, that's the pressure. Yeah. And it's just not um, compatible for people that, 
you know, want to have families or yeah. want to do other things outside that have other commitments, whether it's extended family or, you know, stuff like that. So um, I guess, like, you know, I'd just like to see <laughs> just a bit more flexibility, I mean, particularly around paid parental leave. Like, I think it's crazy that I think we – I don't know the exact figures, but, like, women get, like – so, so many amount of weeks but men get like two or three or something like this so you know even the fact that then um child rearing falls on women yeah. often that means they're going to be out of the workforce longer and they're not going to be given those positions and you know there's yeah. all this kind of um invisible prejudice as well if you work part-time yeah or you yeah you can't fully commit that you're not given opportunity yeah you're seen as like someone who's just dialing in and like you know, why would you give them that thing because they're not really here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I have been doing a lot of research into the countries that do this the best lately. Um, and obviously it's like Norway and Finland and Sweden. Ah, yes. They, they have, I think, <laughs> one of them. Oh, I should have looked this up before you came over. Maybe I'll just dub over this and pretend that I'm really smart. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Badly. <laughs> really badly. The paid parental leave in Norway is 50 50. One of them has like its equal, it's equal parental leave. I'm mm. quite sure. If that's not true, I'll do a correction in the introduction. But it's, um, it's, it's incredible. And what I, what I did find, which was blew my mind, was that you can go and I'm applying for a fellowship to get funding to go and do this. You can go and study, I think it's in Norway, gender budgeting. So from like a financial point of view, you're budgeting to, uh, to be able to take care of both all genders in that process. And that means that parental leave, part-time, flexible working hours is all looked at from a financial beginning modeling point of Whoa. view. I know. My brain went yeah. when I saw that. But then it's so obvious. Like, it makes so much sense what you're saying. Like, yeah. That is such a good idea. Yeah. And so <laughs> councils and government, local governments and councils – up there, um, <laughs> up there, up there in the feminist utopia, <laughs> um, um, are doing this now and doing this kind of gender budgeting. And I was like, oh, oh no, I wow. want to learn about. I want to learn about that, that too. It's amazing. Wow, I've never heard of that. Neither had I. But that's what I mean. That's that's like that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Is like really starting from scratch, a different viewpoint on how we do things. Because yeah. they're, they're written in a patriarchal sense. Yeah. That they are written for men. Yeah. So it's about trying to um, re-understand the way we do the things we do. And that, to me, is feminism. Like, yeah. That is... Um, feminism, for me, is just always questioning the way we do things and then saying, well, what about if we did it from this viewpoint? Or what about if we tried this way, you know? Um, that's why it's. I always say I'm a feminist, because it's it's like you're always questioning the status quo, you know? Like, you never take everything for as it is. And as a result, it makes it better for everybody. Yeah. Because if women are making more money, that's good for everyone. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? And if if there's more flexible working hours and that applies to men as well, then they can spend more time with their kids and they have better responsibility of earning all the money. Like, it just kind of... Yeah. Helps, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and also, like, it's not just also this kind of... heterosexual idea of family as well like for same-sex couples as well i'm sure there's lots of pressure in terms of who gets you know the benefits of the parental leave and who doesn't like it's just bizarre that it has to be weighted in that way yeah yeah oh look i think my hope is that there is a seismic shift coming in that and i think 
I, what do you do you think it's generational that shift or yeah I do think it's generational I mm. do absolutely I like I, I am seeing more um uh, female leaders who are probably 10 years or 15 years ahead of me really starting to ask these questions and doing amazing work. Mm. So it, I, I, I am hopeful like that. I do see a shift coming and I do agree with you that this kind of idea that it was all private conversations that are now very, very public mm. around gender inequality are also helping the conversation and I hope that will shift things. Well, as you say, it's about difficult conversations and yeah. so it's about you know even if you don't have the words to form the question yet just try yeah the more you do it absolutely and whoever's getting the question also needs to be able to handle being questioned yeah in a in a responsible way and not run away and not jump to defense yeah i think that's really um a really important thing it's about resilience and um just making sure that you yeah you can handle being questioned and then always be open to change you know Mm. yeah that's beautiful is there anything else you're asking for, Kelly? Um, what was I saying here? Oh, yeah, just that thing of around November, most women start working for free. So uh, that means for two months of the year, no you're wonder working so your ass off <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> like, oh. it's just, yeah, I just thought that was such an interesting image. Um, it is when you put it in those terms, because you can say, Oh, the wage gap is X percent, but it will... It that means nothing. I just can't... Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually not... It's just not that. Like, it's not that... Um, it's not necessarily that, like, if you're a guy, you're getting paid this, and I'm a yeah. woman and I'm being paid this. Yes, yeah. that is happening. But it's also the amount of work that is expected of me, as opposed to you, yeah. that is unremunerated. That's that. And that's why I like that November women start working for yeah. free. And then when you kind of combine that with, you know, the, the traditional kind of family model, yeah. then the woman is going home and doing quite a significant amount of for caring at yeah. home yeah. for the family, which still is not equal. Yeah. Like, I know some pretty great guys who are amazing dads. Um, <laughs> so don't get angry at me. But it's like in a huge generalisation. But if you look at the vast data, it's still completely outweighed. So it's like... yeah. I did see a thing the other day that said, you know, women are always so tired because smashing the patriarchy is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's a definite. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to part two of our uh, podcast, Mythbusters. Yeah. Mm. Kelly, is there a myth about your work as an artist, about your life, about feminism that you want to bust? Um... I mean, I think, like, as an artist, uh, I mean, the, the pay situation is pretty bad. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, you're not living some... So is, is the myth that you're not living a glamorous bohemian life? <laughs> definitely not. I think um, that's something that I'm really passionate about is, as an artist, um, I have been in, you know, really big exhibitions. I've been commissioned... I, um, my work is in, you know, some of the most major collections in Australia. Um, and yet it was never that I could make any money out of it because artisan never really paid the correct fee. Mm. And I think that, uh, comes from a culture of, well, 
artists are passionate about it and it's um, a good opportunity. So we'll pay everyone else and then we'll pay the artist. It's like, and that just goes on and on and on. And I just, it's made it so I have to then get a, uh, have to have a job Mm. to supplement my artistic career. And I just think that's really sad. Like, unless you're, you're really rich um, or you have a family inheritance that bankrolls your practice mm. or you um, are lucky enough to make commercial product, uh, it's virtually impossible for artists to have a career in Australia and I will stand by that. And it's, I think that's very sad because what we'll start to see is a very, like artists who are either just very elite making art or a pool of young cats who come along who have energy like I had (laughs) just being like I don't care let's do it anyway you know like I'm passionate about it and then you burn out yeah and so there's a huge burnout at around my age like 34 35 yeah where artists are just like man I want to buy shoes like (laughs) I just need some really nice shoes I'm sick of not having shoes yeah um you know when you hit your 30s you're like I like stuff yeah (laughs) I haven't yeah, yeah, had yeah. stuff. I like stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's a shame because if you can support artists through their whole career to remunerate them properly and value what they do and bring to a culture, um, I mean, it's called a practice for a reason. The more an artist practices, the better they are mm. and the more amazing the work they do. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's I think, you know, a bit of a myth buster that artists are... Um, just having a great life, making art, you know, yeah. just being creative. Like, they're so lucky they get to be creative. It's actually a really hard slog. But you see it across the arts, don't you? Like, yeah. but, you know, people who work in the arts yeah. are also really underpaid for the, what they do yeah. compared to, like, a director in a commercial company. Mm. It's like, for some reason, the arts is always having to live off the smell of an oily rag. And it's like, well why it's like this weird thing of like undervaluing what it does and brings to yeah our culture you know the 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 companies the smaller companies that are generally the incubators for that more creative work that drives the narrative for the next 10 years of what you see on the main stage yeah it's interesting i was at um i I go to the stc a lot and i've seen a lot of their work this year Um, it's been great it's really good stuff and i've um at the next show going in is a play called Blacky Blacky Brown by the playwright Nakia Louie, directed by Declan Green with Ash Flanders in it. Yeah. Declan and Ash, 15 years ago, were, uh, they won't mind me saying this, making zero money but making theatre in, like, car parks and dumpsters. Like, <laughs> with no money. And they slogged for yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And now their work is on the main stage of a th- in a small in the smallest theatre that they have, but it's there and it's been there for a few years now. Yeah. It's like, it took them 15 years to, did they just wake up and put on a show at the STC? Which yeah. Which is the biggest, most, you know, not profitable, I don't know if it's profitable, but the biggest, the highest turnover in the country for a theatre company. Yeah. It takes a long time to get there. Yeah. But you need, why, that burnout rate. Yeah, because my point is it's not just getting, getting there. So it's good that mm. they're there. But how do you then keep them there for an extended period of time and some? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because that's what I was saying, like, you know, to be um, shown at GOMA or MCA or yeah. Art Gallery New South Wales, these are pinnacles of, of my career. Yeah. How do you, like, and now I'm like, I'm burnt out, i got nothing. So, you know, yes, you how get you there and then you burn out. How do you stay and grow yeah. for a long period of time? Unless you don't have 
an inheritance, <laughs> which inheritance? I sadly don't. No, um, my, dad, my dad was booking a holiday last year and he said to me, I'm spending the inheritance. And I said, Dad, sorry, 20 bucks. It's all right. <laughs> he got very offended. Sorry, Stuart. Um, do you see, are there other countries that do it better than us? Like, I know that you've been working in Asia a lot lately. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, I've been working a lot in China um, and there's not so much government funding at all, but there's a huge commercial art market. Yeah. So the whole economy is just a completely different scale scale as well as population so Beijing has the whole population of Australia just in Beijing so you can just already now imagine how many people then are willing to support the arts that aren't necessarily from the government you know they're just interested in art yeah so it's just a completely different economy of scale but again talking back to our scale the Nordic countries do it quite well Yeah, yeah. I like or like Amsterdam. Like my friend lives in Amsterdam, and um, she's just like, uh, you know, you can just be an artist here. Like, you can. Like, it's not a struggle. Like, you you do shows. You have a studio. You live okay. Like, it's not. It's not hard. And that's all she does is just be an artist. And I'm like, what is this utopia? (laughs) (laughs) Just cannot imagine. to look to the Europeans to see how we can do this better. But I think you're right. The population and yeah. density of population is a big part Yeah, of yeah, that. it's huge. It's huge. I mean, I was talking with my mate last night about, um, you know, that's why the American film industry is so big because of the population. It's not as subsidised by the government because there's, like, don't they have 230 million people or something that are all... We'll overdub that bit too. <laughs> <laughs> the population of America. It is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Please, again, do that badly. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, yes. So do we need to overpopulate Australia just to help the arts industry? <laughs> yes. God, we Don't need worry way, about climate. We need way more people here. I just, like, more migration. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> Break the island mentality. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Are there any other myths that you wish to bust today? No. Great. <laughs> so the final part of our chat is uh, this episode always comes out on a Wednesday. And so in the spirit of the conversation where we are celebrating each other, um, is there a woman in the world who's doing fabulous work and amazing things or just great work or it, just a brilliant person that you want to celebrate today? Yeah. Um, Salori Tawale. Yeah, Salori Tawale is a visual artist um, working in Sydney. She's Fijian-Australian, and I just think she's amazing. And she's just going from strength to strength. Like, watching Salotti at the moment is like watching someone just at the kind of peak of their game. Like, they're just kicking goal after goal after goal. Yeah. Um, And I'm just really excited to see where she goes. So... Um, she moved up here from Melbourne, I don't know, like a few, five years ago, I'm probably getting that wrong, and went to SCA um, and then, um, you know, was showing and stuff like that and then got the New South Wales um, mid-career to establish Visual Arts Fellowship, the longest title in the world, <laughs> um, from Create New South Wales. And then from... How much is that worth? It was 30K, but then it was like... With Art Bank, yeah, so right. like it's an acquisitive commission, so made new work for it, um, and then went overseas, like went back to Fiji, connected with um, some of her family there, and then went and did the Europe thing, yeah. um, and come back and is just doing amazing work, 
And then now off the back of that, got the Australia Council um, six-month London studio and is going, I think, at the end of the year. And so I just, it's just really exciting to see, like, the, the growth of that artist and um, the important um, voice that Salotti brings to the visual arts scene and the broader conversation um, is just, yeah, I'm just really excited to see where she goes next. Oh, brilliant. Well, we will link to all her things. Yes, please. Awesome. <laughs> That's it. We've potted. Kelly Dolly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. That's all right. Uh, yeah, thanks. Bye. And that was my chat with Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us to have a listen. You know, one of my favorite things about Kelly is that she will always laugh at my terrible jokes. (laughs) Get yourself a friend who will laugh at your terrible jokes and you'll never have a dull day. Uh, Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us again. As always, review, rate, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Let's help other people find us. And then tune in next week for guess what? It's a male guest. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for a dude. When I started up this podcast, I said to myself, one in 10 will be a man. And what a man it is. I'm not going to tell you who it is, though. You're going to have to check in next week and see. Uh, So I will talk to you then. Whatever you choose to do this week, I hope it is a spectacular week for you. And I look forward to talking to you again next week.